This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. When Shai Reshef started a free online university nearly 15 years ago, skepticism was high. Back then, online education was viewed as a poor substitute for in-person study, the real thing. And anyway, how could something free be financially sustainable? Today, though, this college he started, called the University of the People, has won accreditation and has grown to serve 126,000 students. And they're taught by an army of 37,000 volunteers. About half of its student body are first-generation students living in the U.S. But the other half come from all over the world. And this university has worked to support students who have unique obstacles, including more than 16,000 refugees. Meanwhile, the pandemic has changed views about online education. Since now, just about every professor and student has had at least some experience teaching and learning online. But some still have concerns about any all-online college especially around whether you can really check to see that the students are doing their own work. But as the high cost of higher ed continues to be a major policy issue, should more colleges adopt the methods of this free university? And if so, will they? I connected with Reshef to ask what he has learned over the past 15 years, what advice he has for other college leaders, and where he sees online education going. I started by asking him, what was the hardest thing about getting this free university off the ground? You know, there is always the challenge of growing. And we started in 2009. We received our initial accreditation in 2014. We had 500 students at the time. Now we have 126,000 students. So we have exponential growth. So managing a growth is always, um, always the, the hardest thing. But I think that uh, raising enough money, donations, was and still is the hardest thing for us. Um, we are sustainable. The students, you mentioned it, and the students pay you know, $120 per each and, of course, assessment. And this amount makes us sustainable. But in order to accommodate more, and there are a lot of people around the world, refugees and others, who cannot afford even that. We need scholarship in order to um, to enable them to study, and we have a hard time uh, finding enough uh, resources to do that. I went back to an NPR interview that you did way back, you know, in the early days when you're just getting accreditation, and the critique was, you know, this is a this is like nice, but there's no way it can be sustainable, um, and so that's a problem, and. 
how how are you though sustainable? I mean, it is a it is a fair question, even with the small uh, fees you're offering, and um, you know how how is it financially stable? I think that our model is a very different model. First of all, we use technology wherever we can it can it can work, so we save human resources there. We don't see the students ever from the day they sign up until they graduate. So, you know, everything is being done by the computer. The only interaction that they have is with their instructors. Um, we uh, operate from every part of the world where we can achieve quality at a reduction of price. So the academics are mostly in the U.S., but we develop our IT in uh, the West Bank, Palestine. That's where IT, high quality, fraction of the price that we would pay in the U.S., uh, we have a lot of student services are being uh, given from India. So we have a big team in India who are doing the admission and the uh, student services and student support. Again, fraction of the price that we pay in the U.S. Uh, but the major thing is uh, the volunteers. Uh, I'm a volunteer. The deans are volunteers. The faculty are volunteers. We pay them reimbursement for what they uh, uh, for you know, for their costs, but they're pretty much volunteers. But and, and there are other elements because you know we are extremely efficient. Uh, we have very few degrees: business administration, uh, computer science, and health science associate and bachelor degree, and only MBA, master in education, and master in IT, master level courses. Very few uh, courses, simply because that's the, that's the programs that will lead our students to to find jobs and that's why they're coming to us but your menu your menu is small is what you're saying from the efficiency standpoint right? yes but also even with, within the programs we have very few electives uh, we don't have a lot of electives we actually want the students we tell them you know this is the course this is the next course this is the next course so actually we lead them both for them to graduate as soon as they can and, you know, the kind of students that we have, they need their help and they need this guidance. But for us, we have less electives. Last but not least, I will talk about extracurricular activities. We have hardly any extracurricular activities. I keep saying that we highly admire the American college football teams. The only thing we can afford is Quidditch. So, you know, we don't have any sports teams. So, yeah. And uh, it's very, very efficient. And we do only things that are efficient and nothing but. Wait, do you have a Quidditch team? Or was that a fanciful... Uh, I, I, we, we are considering... Potter, we we are not, no, we don't. <laughs> Maybe one day. When you but. get a Harry Potter and when you get a... Excuse me. When you get a Quidditch team, you let us know. Uh, <laughs> big news. That will be big news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other innovative kind of things you've done, experimented with. What are What's something that you've developed at University of the People that's a little different that you think other colleges are not doing but should? I think that the, the overall is that every college should think about what is mandatory and what is not. You know, there are, there are pressure on, on, on the higher education to reduce prices. There is pressure because many colleges lose students, whether because the number of students, you know, shrinking, 
maybe not this coming year, but, you know, in the last few years, but also because a lot of them are going online. I mean, you know, you go to us, you pay, if you study full time, you pay 1,200 a year, you know, so what's the comparison? So other universities should see what they must have and what they don't. Uh, they offer a lot of amazing things, but can you afford them? And, you know, I talked about uh, the courses, the variety of courses. I talked about, uh, I talked about uh, uh, extracurricular activities. But I, go, I think that it goes beyond that regarding the operation. We, our admission process is totally different than most universities. Yeah, tell me what it's like then. Anyone with high school diploma and proficiency in English is welcome to start. So you have a high school diploma, you show us that you are proficient in English, you want to start with us, you're welcome. We ask you to take, to take two courses as, par, as, part, as part of our path to admission. One course is general uh, online strategies where we teach you how it is to study online, our pedagogy, etc. The second one is a course in your field of choice. You want to study business administration, take a business administration course, etc. Pass these two courses, show us that you meet our academic standards. Now, this is amazing for us, especially because a lot of students say, oh, tuition free, I'll send my high school diploma and get a degree by mail. Well, it doesn't quite work this way. We tell them every course that you take, it's 20 hours a week. And the human nature is to say, well, 20 hours a week is for others. I can do it in an hour a week, which you can't. So uh, an hour goes by and, and, and the students is gone if, if that's all they want to to invest, but, and also, you know, do they have the discipline? Do they have the, you know, everything that it takes, the, the, the motivation? But for us, show us that you meet our academic standards. If you pass this course, these two courses, you meet our standards. You get credit for these courses and continue with us as a degree-seeking student. You don't pass them. You can't continue with us. You can take them again, but you can't continue other, otherwise. Now, I think that, you know, with our mission, it's amazing because there are so many people out there that didn't have the opportunity for higher education, want to try it, and we give them the opportunity to try without, without any, any damage. By the way, if they drop after a week, they don't pay anything because you only pay with us for the assessment. So, yes, they spend some time, but no, no financial uh, um, burden. However, when you think about it, we have 126,000 students. What size should be our admission department be? Just think about all these, I don't know, in this size of university, hundreds, thousands of people checking, you know, the, the students' CVs and, and their, their transcript and going to Facebook to see if they're real and blah, blah, blah. You know, we don't care. Just show us that you're good enough. So it's also uh, money saving. I think that universities should simply open their mind to see what they can do differently to save costs, and it can be. I think that the grand scheme, from my perspective, I think that universities should adapt at least partially what we do. Because when you look at the future, why would someone pay $30,000 a year or 40 or 50 when they get an education that is not necessarily better than what they get with us? Now, it's a matter of time until university will be forced 
to reduce their price. Because, you know, if you are the University of uh, Northeast Iowa, I don't know, just making up, and you tell the students, go, come to me, because, you know, I'm your local university, you study with your friends, and I'll help you to find local jobs. Great. Well, what's the price tag for it? Is it $50,000 a year? I doubt. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. It's really interesting. I guess one of the biggest, you know, issues out there, though, is the labor, you know, sort of rights, so to speak. And, and obviously, your uh, professors are doing it as volunteers because they're, you know, this is a, a philanthropic effort to help these students who can, couldn't go to a place that, that costs money. But... You know, professors. You know, there's a whole ecosystem of, of and a profession of, of professors, and and it's beginning more precarious for those people, from what I see. You know, with more adjuncts and and so how how do you and, and it is a big cost for traditional universities. What do you what do you do to keep professors? I'm sure a lot of your professors are paid by a university somewhere else, which is how they can afford to do what you do. I guess. Do you have any thoughts on the broader um, the broader profession there? I would divide the universities into two categories, the selective and the non-selective. The non-selective should merge in, a whole, in order to have, you know, the benefit of the, of the being big and, being, and can be more efficient. Otherwise, they won't survive. A university with a thousand students that charge $50,000 a year, I doubt how long it can, it, can, uh, it can stay there. They should all merge and create the mass, mass universities, and, and that will be part of the resolution. The more selective universities, I think that many of them should move partially to be online. Because what happened if you come and tell your students, listen, I want to offer you to study one year tuition-free, three years come to, come to campus. Now, yes, the campus experience will be shrinked by a year, but the cost will be shrinked by 25% as well. Now, I'm saying if you're a selective university, take the additional students and squeeze them in three years. So you will have the same amount of students studying for three, in three years rather than four years, the same amount of revenues, because it will be the same amount of students, but the students will pay 25% less. This is amazing for everyone. You know, there are ways to do things. You know, we can go to making it two years, two, half, half a degree at home, half a degree uh, on campus. I think that things must change because it's not sustainable, the model as it is now. Now, again, in the two, two examples that I gave, the professors will have a full-time job because they will, see, will teach the same amount of students. So it can work. After the break... Why haven't other colleges adopted the ideas from this free university? And how are things changing in online education since the start of the pandemic? Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students 
to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isticonference.org. I remember you've also said um, in the past, especially early on in the University of People's history, that you felt like you're a model that others would emulate. But I haven't really seen that, and correct me if I'm wrong. So why haven't others moved in and done more of what you're talking about here? Well, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by myself. So I don't know the answer. I can speculate. And I think that the best answer I can, I can give is, is skepticism. You know, when I describe our model, people say, nah, not really. Why do you think that they say that? Why do you think they say that? I guess that because in every industry, if you have a model and someone says that the same results can be achieved in, in a, a fraction of the price, the natural response is no way. Because, you know, they work hard and they have the costs, they know. And like to come and say you can do it, you know, in a fraction of the price is something that is hard for them to, to believe in. Uh, you know, I thought before COVID, the... It was very interesting because we were on the margin, right? We were not the real thing. The real thing was the traditional universities. And then COVID came and we were the only way to teach because we were online. Suddenly the online model, yeah, was the, the only way to get an education. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And instead of everyone say, wow, this is a great model, when COVID stops, they try to, to come back. Now, they can't come back because most students want to study online, appreciate online. You know, why would you wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and listen to a professor that speaks slowly and is boring? You can wake up at, at noon, have the, <laughs> the recording, run it faster and, you know, stop, you know, and, or rewind or whatever you want. So the flexibility is amazing. But I think that there is a fear there. There is skepticism. I think that online, you know, will be a large part of uh, of the education in the future. But it, but, but you know, it takes it. It, it will take uh, time. And uh, I think that uh, our model eventually there will be others like us. I have no doubt. How long it will take? You know, there are one hundred million people in the world who need our services, according to UNESCO. We are one of the, I think, better models. I'm sure that others will do the same one day. So I, I would just say that I think that uh, the experience that we bring to the table is also, it's not that easy. You know, you need the experience. You need to know what to do. But can others do the same? Sure. Would, would we be willing to help others? For sure. So it will happen. But I do want to um, uh, just take take a second to say one of the things about your model that I think some people are have have raised questions about too. Is like you mentioned, you don't see your students because of your model, which is so open. And is what what do you have in place to make sure people are who they say they are, so that they can, so the person who did the work is the one getting the credit for getting the degree, as far as checking identity or whatever, which has always been a concern in an online setting. Well. With the chat GPT, ask any university how they know that that's their students, but I leave this aside. 
Look, uh, the students, first of all, um, our pedagogy is peer-to-peer learning and the students chat among themselves under the supervision of the instructor. Uh, we, chat, we, we check them constantly for plagiarism. So when they submit uh, their homework, we, che- we check that it's not plagiarized. And the final exam are proctored. And proctored meaning that uh, either it's, you know, proctor you, so they, there is someone who watched them uh, if doing the exam, or they go to a proctor that we nominate and take the exam in front of them. So that's our way to verify that uh, these are the, the students that uh, they are. Um, rare that we find, we find there, are, there is plagiarism and we find students who plagiarize. But students who are not the students, this is really rare. So, yeah. Now, you have a large population in your student body of, of students who are refugees, who have had to flee their, their homelands for, for often dangerous reasons. And I wonder, what are, the, what are some specific challenges that those students face to be students? I mean, they're clearly they're facing existential threats to their lives, but in the student context, like what is it you need to specifically provide for refugee students and, and how is that going? I divide the refugee population, sorry for saying that, between, between the Afghan women that we have and the rest. I'll explain in a second why. Uh, po- uh, refugees in general um, have better performance than our overall population, which was great surprise for our for for ourselves, and I think it is because of their high motivation. There is very high motivation among refugees. They carry a lot of uh, they carry a lot with them and a lot of difficulties. We try to help them with. Uh, having program advisors that are dedicated for refugees. So they know we try to be helpful in uh, supporting them, trying to give them extra support. However, we do not give uh, psychological help. We simply cannot do that. Uh, Which, you know, talking about being tuition-free, that's one of the limits that we have. But we're trying to give them more personal attention than uh, other other students. And in general, they are doing good. Yes, we are those who, who disappear, right? Uh, you know, uh, they are not refugees, but take uh, what happened a couple of weeks ago in uh, Turkey and Syria, the, the earthquake. We have a few students that we still haven't heard from. Now, did they drop because... Um, I don't know, they occupied with their families and there are other things that bother them. I hope that that's the case or because, you know, and we got a student to send, a, not a student, someone who sent us a, an email saying, my father uh, died in the earthquake. But the rest, we don't know. It, it will take time. But this is, this is you know, and, and there are as much as we can, is, we can do. The Afghan women are different because the Afghan women, being our best students, by the way, because most of them are coming from universities and they have strong academic background, we gave scholarship to a thousand Afghan women and we announced a thousand scholarship. We were flooded with the Afghan women, we gave, we ended up giving two, over 2,000 scholarships, but we have over 15,000 Afghan women applying. We simply cannot accommodate all of them. We don't have the resources to do that. But in their case, we advised them 
uh, to study the safety of their homes, because women in Afghanistan, for those who do not know, are not allowed to go to a higher education and definitely not to an American uh, university. And we also enable them to use fake names. So if a woman, you know, if you're in a... So if the Taliban sends someone to the classes, they wouldn't recognize who is the Afghan women because Jane from California, if someone decided that she's Jane from California, she might be Afghan a woman. Um, so we try to protect them as much, uh, as, much as we can. Um, that's extra safety that we gave for them because, in, you know, it's... You know, if you're a Syrian refugee and you study with us, there are the difficulties of being a refugee and studying. If you're Afghan women, you have the extra um, extra issues with the government. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, that's a, that is a big thing. And so that's, um, and you have how many refugee students these days? 16,500. And these are excluded, the Syrian who live in Syria, because the UNHCR don't classify them as, as a refugees, but as a internally displaced people. And it doesn't include also the Afghan women who are in Afghanistan. So excluding them, 16,500 students. Uh, we committed to UNHCR to have 25,000 by uh, 2030, and I assume that we'll reach this number much sooner than 2030. So, yeah. Who who else in in what are the biggest sectors that you end up serving? Then who who are your students that are the ones that are using this? You know, the lowest cost option, um, and I know they're around the world. What are some of the other big sector? You know, big chunks of students that you have. First-generation students in the U.S. is a 60% of our, of our population. 50% are uh, parents. 50% um, are non-white. So we have a, diff a different population. A lot of college students, people who... Community colleges, I mean, people who graduate community college and simply cannot afford moving on, so they're coming to us. We have homeless. So it's we have actually... Um, um, Immigrants from other countries, such as the DACA students or, uh, you know, people coming from Latin America. So we have students from, from all, all, all over, non-traditional students, let's put it this way. The majority of our students are non-traditional. -tradi Among them, a lot of them who started colleges have some credit and drop out. And, you know, a few years goes by and they said, wow, I need to complete the degree, so they come. Uh, we have a lot of students from Africa. We have a lot of students from uh, the Arab world. In terms of refugees, and you mentioned, I, I mentioned Syria, but it's also, I mentioned Afghan, it's Ukraine, Rohingyas. We have a lot of uh, Rohingyas who, and most of them live in Bangladesh, uh, who came to us. So, yeah, I think that, uh, <laughs> but we have students from 200 countries, so, you know. Right. And are you feeling like your graduates are getting, are able to, you know, get jobs and do, you know, is this degree kind of, the, you know how prestige plays a part in um, higher education in the world. Is, is, are you finding that your students are able to use it as a ticket to get the jobs they want? So I'll give two answers. The first one, 
is yes. We have graduates who work with Amazon, Google, IBM, Microsoft, World Bank, JP Morgan. 15% of our graduates continue to graduate school. Our One of our first graduates just graduated uh, from MIT. And by the way, we have agreement with a few universities where students after two years with us can transfer. McGill would be one example to complete a degree on campus there. So, yeah, we are extremely proud of our graduates. I guess that the second part is that we are a young organization. So while the overwhelming majority, over 80% of our students, of our graduates work we need a few more years to to see how well they do because you know let's let's be honest if you work with in McDonald and you study with us and because of our degree you became a shift manager nice but you know is that is that a, is that the better life you expected when you came come to study with us probably you want more than that but we need a few years to see the the real effect of our degree but so far we are very uh, happy with our graduates and their job placement and where they are. Uh, I think it will only improve along the years. What is your completion rate? The re- Again, tough question. Um, 81% uh, retention, meaning moving from first year to second year. Um, however, we give our students 10 years to complete a degree. So remember that I mentioned that in 2014, when we received our accreditation, we had 500 students. So they haven't, (laughs) they still have a long way to go. Um, But uh, we feel that we're doing, we're doing, I mean, looking at 80% after a year is, uh, I think is quite, uh, quite good compared to um, other online universities, community colleges, we're quite happy. And by the way, and it is to be said, uh, we decided last year that our main focus will be on uh, improving student satisfaction and retention. Uh, we feel that even though we are online and even though uh, we are um, very limited with our resources being tuition-free, we can do more, both in order to increase the number of students who move to from non-degree-seeking students to become degree-seeking students. I mentioned the path for admission. And uh, those who complete courses, satisfy, you know, increase the satisfaction in moving from first year to second year, second year to third year, etc. Uh, so we believe that we'll see their great improvement as well. We have a lot to do. What can I say? <laughs> well, I know we need to go, but I, is there any other comments you have? You're about to head to the South by Southwest conference. Um, you'll be speaking about your model. And do, we're in this, we're coming out, you know, people are back in person after the pandemic lockdowns. There's been a lot of changes because of that period for, for all of us. What do you see as like the the lesson in online education broader than just your your operation that that you know, where are we in this kind of evolution of online education and higher education? I think that that one thing that is clear is that online is here to stay and it will continue to grow. However, I think that we should have a better performance of online uh, universities and students. It's the same. Um, the quality of online can and should continue to improve. Uh, both mainly by technology. Uh, You know, 
we are all afraid of uh, chat GPT, right? Well, maybe chat GPT can, can help us educate the students better. You know, when Wikipedia came, everyone said, wow, people will cheat. They will never write anymore. They will all take everything from Wikipedia. Well, you know, Wikipedia is there to stay and people use it now and hardly anyone criticizes it for, exist, for its existence. I think that we should learn, be open-minded uh, and improve what we do and because it will grow and it should grow. And I think that the traditional online uh, institutions should look at online and uh, embrace it rather than, you know, push it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for taking this time and, and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please take a minute to give us a rating or review, which helps others find the show. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.